I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 73 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about protesting done right. So over the last oh, several years, there have been a growing number of protests. I think it really started to uh, kick off uh, with the whole episode in Ferguson, and then we've seen protests in Baltimore, uh, numerous Black Lives Matter protests, and then most recently the protest in the wake of the election of President Trump. Um, and I have to admit that I'm somewhat sympathetic to protesting and civil disobedience. I think it can be effective. But the problem is most of these modern protests have absolutely no relation to the things that are being protested. For instance, consider the protest of the 1960s during the civil rights era. Think about Rosa Parks. She refused to give up her seat on the bus. And her refusal to submit kicked off the Montgomery bus boycott, which led to other boycotts and and lunch counter sit-ins. All of these things targeted the system that was oppressing them. And they weren't just random acts of violence or temper tantrums. They had a point. They disrupted the unjust system. And it was extremely effective. Think about it. Rosa Parks' simple act of defiance was the spark that set a fire that ultimately consumed Jim Crow. But so many of these uh, protests today... Uh, you know, people go sit in a highway or burn down their neighbor's business. It has absolutely no relation to the thing that they're protesting. So, you know, if you're going to go protest the police, go sit in the police department's lobby or block in all the police cars or or do something that has to do with the police. You know, blocking my way on the interstate is not helping your cause. It, it has no relation to the cause. It's interesting. I've been reading a book about the Stamp Act crisis, and I'll tell you what. The colonists understood how to do pro, uh, protests and how to do disobedience. Um, the Stamp Act crisis was really the first American nullification movement. You know, People always think that, that nullification was invented by the South right before the Civil War, but the colonists perfected the strategy 100 years earlier. The book that I'm reading actually has a chapter in it titled Nullification. Now, the way the colonists confronted the British and its effectiveness is pretty instructive. You know, we call the, uh, the Revolutionary War heroes, the colonists, we, we call them heroes. But we often forget that they used violence. They used protest. They used 
what were in effect riots to protest and resist what they considered to be British tyranny. But they targeted their violence in specific ways. And they supported what they were doing by well-defined principles along with more traditional political action. And it was extremely effective. So what exactly was the Stamp Act? Well, it was passed in March of 1765 by the Parliament. And basically what it did was impose a comprehensive schedule of taxes on all kinds of commercial and legal documents and transactions. It covered things like wills and court actions and mortgages, transfers of property, insurance policies, uh, commerce, newspapers. They even had a stamp tax on playing cards. So basically, most every transaction that required the use of a document or paper required an official treasury stamp. Now, all of this paper had to be obtained through a uh, commissioner that was appointed by the crown. And any transaction that was on unstamped paper was considered to be invalid. Now, the colonists objected to the act primarily because they believed it was unconstitutional for Parliament to tax them. They argued that they were not represented in Parliament, therefore only their colonial assemblies could legally levy taxes on them. It's the no taxation without representation argument that you learned in your history class. They forcefully made this argument over and over and over again. In every colony, prominent colonists banded together to protest the Stamp Act. These eventually became known as Sons of Liberty, and they were the ones who, who drove the resistance and created the philosophical foundation for which further action would be based upon. Um, for instance, the Sons of Liberty in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, wrote to their brethren in Massachusetts and said that since the Stamp Act violated the fundamental privileges of British citizens, it was, quote, therefore void of all lawful authority, so that depending on mere force, it may be lawfully opposed by force. So they were laying this foundation. They also took political action. Just nine days after the Stamp Act was announced, Patrick Henry drafted and introduced five resolutions of protest in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Now, eventually, the resolutions known as the Virginia Resolves were voted on separately and passed. The first two asserted the rights of every Virginian to the same time-honored liberties of all Britons. Uh, the third declared the right of self-taxation as essential. The fourth asserted the right to be governed only by laws passed by their own consent and approved by their own governor. And the fifth resolved that, quote, the General Assembly of this colony have the only and sole exclusive right and power to levy taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony. There was also an additional resolution that foreshadowed nullification, and it declared that Virginians were not obliged to obey laws not enacted by their assembly. But in a tactical error, Patrick Henry left for home, and on the final day of the session, the conservative old guard in the House of Burgesses defeated the additional resolution, and they voted to rescind the first five as well. But even in defeat, these principles took hold, and they circulated throughout the colonies, and they created the basis for action. And that action began on August 14th in Boston, basically with a riot. First, they hung Andrew Oliver, the man who was reportedly chosen to distribute the stamped paper in effigy. They then proceeded to burn down his business. They also tore up his house. 
The following night, the mob reassembled and proceeded to tear up Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson's house. It wasn't long after that Andrew Oliver decided being the stamp paper distributor was not such a good idea, and he publicly resigned his commission. Now, this repeated itself in a number of colonies, this intimidation, this burning of people in effigy, tearing up their houses. Basically, it created an environment where nobody was willing to accept the job of stamped paper distributor. Since nobody was willing to distribute this paper, it became absolutely impossible for the Stamp Act to be put into effect. Uh, so essentially what happened is things just shut down, but it didn't take long before the colonists began doing business without the stamp paper. And this was particularly true uh, in the ports. All of the customs paperwork required this stamped paper. So ships were piling up in the harbor. Uh, business came to a halt. Well, that didn't last long. They just decided, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and, and uh, operate without the stamped paper. So in effect, by simply making it impossible for the act to be uh, implemented, the colonists shut down the Stamp Act, and it wasn't long before it was repealed. So that's how protest and effective nullification works. It requires a strong philosophical foundation, but it also requires targeted action, not just random acts of violence, but targeted action that is designed to shut down the unconstitutional or unjust action. There's a lesson to be learned here. If you want your liberty, you have to be willing to act. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and spread the word. And if you haven't done so already, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast for free. And you're welcome to send me any thoughts or ideas to michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.